Don't uh, want to shock anybody, but Christmas is just around the corner. Yes, so we're only in October, but it will be here before we know it. And this is the first time the holiday season where we are actually being promised that ride sharing will be in place in BC. We'll believe it, I think, when we see it, but this is the first year we could have access to things like Uber and Lyft when trying to get to in and out of the city and around wherever it is that we are going. But if you've been paying attention to what's been happening at Vancouver City Council, you likely know that Council has approved some additional fees when it comes to ride sharing in that city uh, to ease congestion. This is the 30-cent pickup and drop-off drop-off fee to manage congestion in the city's core, as well as a $100 annual licensing fee for ride-sharing drivers. And again, the city of Vancouver saying that this is all being done to reduce congestion and to make sure once ride-sharing comes to town, it won't cause more congestion on the roads. So whether or not that's true, well, we'll have to wait and see. But are all of these fees added on to the ride-sharing made-in-BC solution making it too expensive? Are they just more and more taxes that people will have to pay? Well, let's bring in Chris Sims, the BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. She is on the phone with us. Good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, what's your take on the fact that it seems that we keep getting a fee here, a tax there, a little bit more when it comes to ride-sharing? This is unfortunately typical uh, for many uh, Greater Vancouver uh, city governments. It's another form of tax, it's another form of regulation, and it's another way of throwing a roadblock in front of what is really a progressive development in most other North American cities. Uh, Whether you prefer things like Uber or Lyft or whatever form of ride-hailing or ride-sharing you want, this has just been a reality now for a few years in many North American cities. Vancouver is the laggard by far, and we can see why now. Uh, Right now what we've done is we've basically popped the hood and we're looking at all the components that form big government and red tape. And Vancouver is a perfect example of that. So here they are. They're tacking on an extra $100 or so fee just to operate within the city of Vancouver. What's going to happen when West Vancouver and North Vancouver and Coquitlam and Burnaby all jump on the same bandwagon? It's going to make uh, becoming an Uber or Lyft driver unaffordable. And what's really sad is that a lot of people will drive uh, Uber and Lyft or some form of ride hailing in order to make ends meet. They do it to and from their own regular day job or their evening job if they're working as a server or if they're working during the day. This is something to make life somewhat more affordable in one of the most unaffordable cities on earth. And here we've got the government not helping. It does seem strange. And like you said, if other municipalities and places start doing the same thing, then suddenly you becoming a part-time Uber driver or Lyft driver, exactly that. If, you, if you're somebody who drives, say, from Vancouver to West Vancouver a couple times a week or from, from North Vancouver to South Surrey a couple times a week and you want to turn on the app to be a driver, suddenly mm-hmm. you're paying all of these fees. And if you don't get a fare, it's not worth it. Exactly. You're never going to get that money back or recoup it. And so you're paying all these extra fees, and I'll get back to the congestion charge after this. It's really silly that they're trying to do that. And then, so they've got all these extra fees based on the different cities that they're operating in. Uh, Some cities are trying to say they're going to refuse them to allow it to work in places like Surrey. And then there's also the Class 4 licensing requirement, which is actually quite onerous. You need to study up hard for that. You need a medical exam for that. It's several hundred dollars to get 
that licensing fee. Right now, most of those uh, licenses for Class 4 are men, where usually, apparently, Uber and Lyft drivers are around 30% women or so. So apparently that's presenting a barrier. And just to give you an idea of what a Class 4 usually looks like, that's something that people use to drive, say, a minibus. Like, that's a pretty heavy-duty form of a, of a driver's license. And in most other jurisdictions, they only need their regular Class 5. And if you look at something like the congestion fee, this is a real head-scratcher. So in other places, they've seen a reduction in congestion. So, for example, the University of Phoenix did a years-long study on what they called the Uber effect. But you could do the same for something like Lyft. And they found that their congestion went down because, as you just described, most ride-sharing people are doing it part-time. They're already in their car anyway. They're going to and from. And the folks who are taking those rides would otherwise quite often take their own cars. And now they're choosing not to. It actually has reduced congestion in some major North American cities. And so I think Vancouver City has a very bad track record of trying to throw their hands in the air and saying, oh, well, congestion, pay more. Actually, Vancouver is the sixth the number that comes after five, sixth most congested city in Canada. Even though we like to complain about it a lot and traffic jams are awful, we aren't that bad compared to other major cities. Uh, the the um, former mayor of Delta, Lois Jackson, who's now currently a city councillor, she has come out saying, uh, wanting to, pardon the pun, put the brakes mm-hmm. on Uber and Lyft. She was citing Seattle, though, and I'm not sure which exact study, but she said in Seattle, and, and it may have been anecdotally, I'm not sure, saying in that city, there was some evidence that it was taking people who were otherwise walking or biking or taking a bus, and they were then going and taking ride sharing instead. And she had concerns about um, taking people out of those scenarios and putting them in vehicles. But but I think, like you said, also, it still doesn't put, that doesn't mean you're putting an extra vehicle on the no. road if it's somebody who's already driving. It doesn't make the person suddenly materialize and then purchase a car and then purchase all this licensing and go through the heck that is ICBC and then become a driver. No, it doesn't automatically make somebody a driver. They're already usually a driver. And now they're going to have to be a real patient driver in order just to simply be an Uber or Lyft driver. Uh, one, the thing that struck me as well, so in the Vancouver, what was just passed mm-hmm. in Vancouver, the, the congestion fee, so they were, they're calling it the congestion and curbside management fee, uh, will be applied to pickups and drop-offs in the Vancouver core uh, from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. To me, it's, I, I suppose it's what they want, is it's going to encourage people, then you need to get there by 6.50 in the morning or 7.01, and you're going to avoid the fee, which then I think pushes it, it pushes the problem away, it doesn't solve anything, but maybe just pushes the problem around. Yes, exactly. And this is one of those silly things that government will often come up with, and then they'll wind up with more problems down the road because they're not anticipating them. I would highly encourage anybody who cares about the issue of congestion or mobility or any of these other fun buzzwords that TransLink and Metro Vancouver and Vancouver like to use to take a look at their actual study on what they proposed for their fees that would be uh, charged going over things like bridges. The type of tolls that they were proposing were in the thousands of dollars per year. And it really went under the radar when they released it about six months ago. And so this is the same sort of thinking that leads into this. Ride sharing is supposed to be something that makes life easier for people to be picked up. I've actually only been in a ride sharing vehicle once in my life, and that was when I was in Montreal 
it was amazing. It didn't look like there was, you know, chaos around me. Um, but Vancouver is one of the last laggards, and people are still just thunderstruck when they land at the airport and they can't pick up an Uber or a Lyft or some sort of a ride share. And it's one of those things that's supposed to ease things. It's supposed to be part of the gig economy. It's supposed to be some way of making life more affordable. And it's just amazing. It's so textbook of, unfortunately, Vancouver City Council of being more theoretical and more academic than real life. So they're really studying their books and being very theoretical about what they would like to see in their own versions of like Sim City or whatever. They're not actually getting out there and living like a real person and wondering how this could affect the average person. And we're hearing from average people saying, this is going to torpedo my ability to be a rideshare driver. And I was really trying to count on the few extra hundred bucks a month. And even with the city saying that they will take a look at the $100 licensing fee six months down the road into the once ride sharing is here, uh, I'm sure you would know better than I. uh, Not a huge history of fees being redacted or fees being taken back after a, a local government or any government of that level thinking, oh, we don't need to keep charging this. No, once once any level of government gets that kind of funding, as they like to call it, or revenue stream, which is just a fancy word for taxes, they get hooked on it. And so they'll expand their government, they'll hire more staff, they'll do more studies, and they'll get hooked on the funding. And then when you try as a new government to come in and reduce it, they'll scream blue murder and say, these are horrible cuts, you're affecting the most vulnerable. There's really no way to get rid of it once it's in. The best way to fight a tax is to stop it before it happens. And so, you know, for folks who live in Vancouver or who care about ride sharing, Pick up the phone, send an email to your city councillor and the mayor and let them have it. That's the only way to stop this from happening, because if they just are allowed to cruise on through, they'll just keep adding this red tape and adding these taxes. And you guys won't get the ride sharing that you want. All right, Chris, we will leave it there. Thank you so much. Always good to chat with you. Thank you. Well, as you've been hearing in the news, BC's Minister for Citizens Services, Ginny Sims, has resigned from the NDP cabinet. This uh, amid an RCMP investigation. We don't know a lot about the investigation. We heard from the Premier saying that he learned from Attorney General David Eby that a special prosecutor had been appointed to oversee the investigation, and that's what prompted the resignation of Ginny Sims. Let's bring in Mike Smith, province columnist, also a host here on CKNW. Mike, good morning. Hiya, Jill. What do we know about this as far as why a special prosecutor has now been appointed? It's one of those mysteries around the ledge and the legislature session starts again on Monday. So isn't this an interesting wrinkle with the politicians all heading back to work here? Kind of reminds me a little bit of the um, when the clerk and the sergeant at arms in the House earlier last year were marched out of the building under a police escort. Nobody knew what it was about at the time, because we know a lot about that spending scandal now. But this one, a little mysterious, although we, Ginny Sims has gotten in a lot of trouble over the last couple of years. I mean, last year, she had to apologize for using her personal email, which looked like maybe trying to circumvent, circumvent freedom of information laws. And she was the minister responsible for freedom of information laws, so that wasn't a good look. And she, then she got in the same jam again in the spring. And then w- earlier this year, we had a whistleblower in her office. So a woman named Kate Gilly had written a letter uh, 
who had worked briefly in Sims's office. Again, more allegations of possibly circumventing FOI laws, and also a little bit more uh, disturbingly writing letters for applicants seeking visas to Canada from Pakistan, some of whom were denied entry into the country. Some speculation some of these visa applicants might have been on a security watch list. This whistleblower letter, which ended up with the Liberals and has been passed on to the RCMP, there was also some suggestion of maybe campaign donations being made in return to supporting visa applications to Canada. She has denied all of that. She said there's been nothing, there's no wrongdoing there. She did nothing wrong. Is that what this is about? Is that what the RCMP are investigating? We don't know. Maybe, maybe that's what it could be about. But certainly Ginny Sims in hot water here, which is kind of situation normal for her. She's in, she's an MLA. It seems to get in a lot of trouble. Yeah, and she so she's yeah. denied all of the allegations as well and said right. that she, she resigned her position because she while this investigation was going, but she's confident she'll be cleared, which I think everybody says that in, this, in, the, in that scenario because unfortunately we've gone through this related to the legislature before. So do we have any idea timeline as to when we might find out more or, or there might be an update in the investigation? Not, not clear exactly how long this is going to take. It's potentially a complex investigation. I mean, a lot of the information that this whistleblower revealed in the spring, there's a lot of dots to connect there, and it was fairly complicated. The Liberals certainly thought that it stunk to high heaven, and they were demanding that Ginny Sims be, be replaced in cabinet last spring, and Premier John Horgan said, no, I've got confidence in her. She's staying in my cabinet. And the Liberals are now saying, we told you so. This is why we said she should have been fired last spring. Now you've got an RCMP investigation. But how long that takes, Jill, could be a long time. We all know that the wheels of justice grind slowly here in this province. And sometimes these special these investigations, especially with a special prosecutor in place, can take a long time time so it may be a while before we get to the bottom of it and like you said there's there's speculation or thoughts that it could be related to the things that you just mentioned the the visa applications uh, the using whatsapp using personal email Uh, hard to believe that it's not related to that because if it's not then what the heck else is going on well you got to figure it's probably something to do with that because this whistleblower who wrote this letter uh, whom Jimmy's Ginny Sims, by the way, described her as basically a disgruntled ex-employee with some kind of axe to grind. But the Liberals certainly took it very seriously, and they actually contacted the RCMP. Mary Polak, the Liberal House leader, uh, went to the RCMP and requested an investigation and said, look, we think there's evidence of wrongdoing here, and we think the Mounties should look into it. So that is certainly on the record already. So, you know, ipso facto, maybe that's what this is about. It would appear to be that's what it's about, but we don't know for certain. There's been no confirmation from the RCMP or the special prosecutor about what exactly the investigation is all about. But certainly the Liberals complained to the RCMP, so logical that maybe there's something to do with it. And Ginny Sims, as you said, denied all wrongdoing. So we'll see where it goes. How does this look for the Premier? Because as you mentioned, he stood by Ginny Sims when the Liberals started asking questions and demanding that he take action. How does this stand for him in that, is it possible he didn't know that that this was happening or he didn't he he still doesn't know what it is that 
they're investigating and or, or didn't know at the time when he stood up for her and said, no, she's not going anywhere. Well, it's hard to know exactly what detail that he had on it, but he said at the time that he had confidence in her and he didn't think it was necessary for her to step aside. And there was some head scratching there because she seemed to be getting into trouble consistently. So it's like any time Ginny Sims's name appeared in the media, it was usually to do with some sort of scandal or controversy. And it seemed to be kind of um, a negative point for Horgan. Why would he keep her in his cabinet, but he stood by her? Now, remember, she is a former head of the BC Teachers Federation. And there was some thought that maybe Horgan wanted to keep her in there in order to keep the teachers union happy. <laughs> but uh, now we see the teachers union kind of upset these days with the pace of contract talks with the government. So maybe it didn't work, work that much, but it, she's still popular in the teachers rank and ranks and popular among uh, members of the teachers union. So there was some thought that maybe that's why Horgan kept her around. Uh, she's also a former uh, MP. She's been a politician yeah. for years. Uh, yeah. She, if anybody, I mean, she knows what it means to be a politician. You would think she knows what's allowed and what's not allowed. Does it seem strange that since becoming an MLA, like you said, every story about Jenny Sims has been something uh, related to some allegations of some, something that is wrong. Yeah, I mean, there's been some questionable judgment there, uh, especially since last year she got in her first jam over the FOI stuff. So allegations that she was using her personal email to do government business, which is not allowed because then that would not be disclosable under freedom of information. And there is a duty to document when you're a cabinet minister. So you're not supposed to be going under the radar or using back channels for to do government official government work and it looks like it might be hiding it from freedom of information and she was the FOI minister responsible so that was a bad look she ended up apologizing for that last year and promising to do better and then there were more allegations of some of similar activity earlier this year so you know despite being a very experienced politician, as you mentioned, um, there seems to be repeated kind of bad decisions here that she's made. How many times now have we had as well, and I'm not asking you for a specific number, but I, I mean, going back to the Liberals, there was this, the controversy over you would make an FOI for certain things and that would come back, nope, there was no email. Nobody ever wrote anything down. There was only verbal talking about that. I mean, there were allegations of using personal email uh, then as well. So it seems to be, uh, it's not a partisan thing that uh, when you talk about uh, these these allegations, it's happened so many times. Yeah, you know, in BC politics, it's kind of like Groundhog Day sometimes because you sort of see stuff happening over and over again and you get like deja vu. Boy, I feel like I've gone down this rabbit hole before, but it's like only the parties have, have switched places. Yeah, you're right. When the Liberals were in power, they got into lots of trouble for the same stuff, like using private email accounts to do government business, and they had their knuckles wrapped over circumventing freedom of information laws. The NDP went to town on it, absolutely eviscerated the Liberals for it, scored a lot of political points. And then when the NDP get into power, they do the exact same thing. So, you know, it's ever thus in uh, in BC politics or politics in general that this kind of stuff goes around and around. It's interesting, though, with Ginny Sims now under investigation, uh, with the standings in the B.C. legislature being as close as they are, remember that the NDP Green Coalition here 
has just a very slim two-seat majority in the legislature. So she's stepped aside from cabinet, but she remains as an NDP MLA in the caucus. So she would still be showing up at the legislature on Monday as the session resumes. She'd still be in the legislature casting a vote if there are votes to be held. So it would not appear to threaten uh, the NDP Green um, working majority here, at least not yet. Hmm, exactly. Stay tuned and we'll yes. see what happens next with that. All right, Mike, thank you so much for breaking it down for us. Appreciate that. Anytime, Jill. Well, my guess is residents living near or around this one particular condo in Yaletown knew uh, there were many parties there, maybe even witnessed or heard the big Halloween bash of 2018. Well, that is at the center of a lawsuit filed by Ani Property Management asking for more than $75,000 in damages from the tenants, also claiming that the tenants of this suite, which signed a one-year lease, repeatedly uh, didn't pay the rent. And that rent was not cheap, $15,000 a month, and broke a bunch of other strata rules as well. Sounds like a bit of a nightmare situation. And yes, this one is extreme. Thankfully, we don't hear about stories on this level too often. But what does it mean as far as the landlords? Do you have to go down the route of suing, taking legal action when something like this happens? Well, let's bring in David Hutniak. He is the CEO of Landlord BC and joins us on the line now. David, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, good morning, Jill. Uh, this is an extreme example, but it certainly does raise questions about you You have a tenant, they sign a one-year lease, so you think all is good. What do you do when they start breaking all the rules? Yeah, this is definitely extreme. And, you know, it's, when you read the, the article on it, because uh, I personally have had no other exposure to, to the case, but, uh, you know, it, there's are there other things at play here? Uh, you know, we've had a recent example in, and more where there were choppers flying in, etc. We live in the Instagram and YouTube age, as you know. So who knows? There could be uh, other things at play. But definitely, this is an extreme. Uh, most tenancies are successful, and renters and landlords are responsible and res- respectful. And, uh, you know, you and I talked about this before. I mean, I think uh, BC, both landlords and renters have, you know, good access to ju- justice. The Residential Tenancy Act uh, works for both. Uh, you know, however, uh, you know, our justice system, whether it's pertains to residential tendencies or criminal law, you know, it's it's not perfect and it does not always, uh, uh, you know, work as fast as it should. And, and perhaps uh, usually one or both parties are not always happy with the outcome. You know, in this particular case, uh, you know, on the uh, property management, uh, you know, clearly, uh, you know, they, we're familiar with them. Uh, they know what they're doing. They are a well-resourced uh, entity, uh, and uh, you know they they uh, clearly uh, you know took multiple steps here through the Residential Tenancy Act uh, uh, and the branch uh, with arbitrators, etc. And uh, uh, you know I guess in in the context of any system, uh, we expect or uh, hope that all parties uh, who are subject to that system will will respect it and. It uh, appears as if, uh, you know, the parties that were renting this this unit, uh, uh, you know, chose not to do that. And uh, so, yeah, they're ending up in Supreme Court and their bailiffs involved, etc. And this is all a very uh, expensive process. Uh, you know, again, uh, Ani uh, has the luxury of having uh, resources, financial resources and, and, and uh, staff resources to 
go through this process. But, you know, most landlords are small landlords in the province and, uh, you know, they don't necessarily have that luxury. So, so it's, it's concerning, um, but it is, uh, you know, the system by and large works the, in these extremes here when you have really uh, belligerent parties. Um, yeah, there's, there's always challenges, but, uh, you know, they are going to the Supreme Court. Uh, they're uh, advancing, uh, you know, their, their case to recoup these, these monies. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, is does this, uh, do these individuals have the capacity to to even repay those monies, you know, that's, that's, that's the system. It's not unique to tenancies. That's our judicial, you know, that's how uh, the judicial or system works, access to justice works. And, and it's really frustrating to, to see. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't know um, what more can be done. Uh, <clears throat> certainly, uh, you know, we know that uh, the government has shown uh, significant additional funds into the residential tenancy branch to improve services there and more arbitrators. Now, the one area where I think this uh, may well, uh, this particular situation has the potential to be addressed it, through uh, the uh, uh, residential tenancy branch is with the new com- uh, compliance and enforcement unit. And I don't know you know, whether they decided to uh, become involved in this situation. I don't have access to that information but uh, that's a, a new uh, unit within RTD. It has already taken some action. I know that they are, you know, on, on a couple of landlords. I know that they're, I do know that they are investigating uh, three or four or five uh, renter situations. And, and basically they have a mandate to uh, enforce the law and they have the power to uh, uh, assess penalties. They have the power to actually expose um you know, the the uh, parties who are breaking the Residential Tenancy Act in sort of extreme situations to expose them publicly, and, which obviously, uh, you know, this, this situation already is public, but in others that would probably make it very difficult for people to, to be able to rent homes in the future. And obviously if landlords are equally behaving poorly to be able to continue to, to be landlords. So I think you know, we're seeing progress here, but yeah, this this is extreme and, and uh, very frustrating to see. And it is an extreme case, like you said. We often talk about tenants and uh, tenants being in situations where they feel they're, they're mistreated or not being treated fairly. Uh, but with this push, with the empty homes taxes and these taxes that are meant to get more rentals onto the market, um, are we seeing, are there enough protections in place for landlords and when landlords have problem tenants? Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Uh, you know, certainly when the empty homes tax was being introduced here in Vancouver, we were involved in the early stages, and, you know, in the context of uh, advising the city on, you know, the uh, the Residential Tenancy Act and really being, um, offering ourselves as a resource for these prospective new landlords to educate them, which is really, you know, the bottom line issue. And, and, and again, Ani here, you know, hugely resource company with, you know, extensive knowledge about uh, residential tenancies. But but for many of these smaller landlords, uh, like through this empty homes tax, et cetera, that you, you're mentioning, yeah, th- these folks are, are, are novices. And, but, but which always, you know, leads to what I say every time I talk with you or anybody about this. You know, it is incumbent upon the landlord to understand a couple of things. One is they are running a business here as soon as you take a month's rent. You're running a business, and as 
such, when if you're running a business, then it is your responsibility to ensure that you educate yourself about, you know, the rules and regulations that surround that business. And in this case, it's the Residential Tenancy Act. And, and if you decide to become a landlord and you don't know the Residential Tenancy Act, you know, your rights and responsibilities of tenants, you know, how to mitigate your risk, then you are really setting yourself up for failure. If you don't know the best practices around, you know, screening tenants and managing tenants, etc., well, then, you know, you shouldn't be surprised that, you know, you may uh, at some point run into a, uh, you know some issues around uh, residential tenancies. So, so that's you know that's the other uh, you know constant issue, frankly, and and in particularly in you know sort of with smaller uh, you know secondary suite uh, landlords. And you make an interesting point because we, it seems to be overly simplified in, uh, oh, your house is empty? Okay, well, just rent it out as if, if as if it's such an easy thing to do. But you're right, it's not. You, you're actually becoming a small business owner, and not everybody's suited for that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I know with the empty homes tax and the Airbnb regs, we had you know heard you know a good chunk of our membership are you know licensed third-party property managers and uh, you know, they certainly saw an uptick in their business, and that's that's probably the right thing to do for many of these small landlords or prospective landlords. Is you know, if you don't have the the, you're not wired to do this. You don't have the time. Then really, you know, hire professional management, uh, licensed property managers. I think that's a good strategy. Uh, you know, it might cost some money, but it's probably going to save you a ton in the in the long run. Um, you know, but. Uh, you know, the the other issue, like I said, goes back to education. You know, we're actually, you know, we've been commissioned by the provincial government to do uh, uh, regional uh, educational workshops in 13 regional locations in the province starting next week uh, in Fort St. John, Terrace, and Prince George. So, you know, if you're a landlord, go to our website, landlordbc.ca, scroll down, you'll see a little section there on regional education. Uh, click on that and follow the thread and... and uh, you know, find a location near you. It's free. Uh, we, we we secured a, a little bit of support from the provincial government to do this as part of the uh, rental housing task force. Uh, you know, we all agree that landlords. You know, the more knowledge they have, the better it is for both landlords and tenants. Um, and then the overriding issue, uh, again, you know, I, I've always appreciated you raising, uh, you know, the rental housing crisis. And as you know, Joe, it's it's supply, supply, supply. And until we you know, build enough, uh, you know, secure uh, purpose-built rental in particular uh, to address these persistently low vacancy rates. Uh, you know, this, this we're going to continue to have challenges with, you know, uh, rental so- shortages and invariably that can lead to additional conflict between renters and landlords. And so we need to, you know, ensure we have a legislative and regulatory environment that's, you know, conducive to building more rental. We need support from all levels of government. We need to, you know, have an environment conducive to operating rental for credit that. So let's, you know, uh, I speak at public hearings all the time, and it's just really right now very frustrating that, you know, uh, you know the broader community just is not uh, very protective of, you know, their the character of their community, their anti-density, anti-rental for crying out loud. And uh, so the crisis is going to get worse for renters, unfortunately, if we don't build a ton of rental and, and quickly. So this is where we're at. All right. Uh, we will leave it there. David, always great to chat with you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. 
Yeah, thanks for reaching out. Take care. We're going to take a look now at uh, a look at homelessness. And this is something that was tried in the United States and also in Canada. And could it be the pathway to ending homelessness in this country? Joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is uh, Gino D'Estasio, a professor of geography, also vice president of research and innovation at the University of Winnipeg. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Well, thank you for having me on. Uh, talk a bit about this. For people that have not heard of this so, or uh, the details of an initiative that was first uh, effective in ending homelessness in some American cities, this housing first idea, what is kind of the basic idea behind this model? Absolutely. Well, housing first is a real important intervention in ending homelessness. And what it does is gets people into housing, but provides access to really core supports to ensure that that person remains in housing. And sometimes people think it sounds simple. Huh, take somebody who's homeless, get them housing, and provide them supports. But it's really in the combination of those two and the intensity of the available supports that really makes a difference in people's lives. And because it does sound like it's oversimplified, doesn't it? In that uh, in Vancouver or parts of Metro Vancouver, uh, we've been going down the road of this idea of modular housing or temporary housing and getting people into housing. Uh, but again, it seems like the, the main part of the equation or a very important part of that is the support system as well. Absolutely. And Vancouver was a key part of the at-home Shea Swa project from which this report builds. So Starting 10 years ago, five Canadian cities, including Vancouver, Moncton, Montreal, Toronto, and Winnipeg, launched Canada's first real comprehensive Housing First program. And again, what we did in each of those cities is test different ways in which we could get people access to good quality housing, but then offer available supports, case management, psychiatric supports, supports around addictions or other kind of health or social needs, and really build relationships with people. And, you know, that is some of the things that we forget, that sometimes, you know, when somebody's struggling, they just need somebody that really works directly with them, understands them, and builds a relationship. And while we might call that innovation, sometimes it's just real common sense in terms of some of the simple ways in which we can make a difference in somebody's life. Uh, so when the the at home the Chesois, the at home Chesois project started, and the price tag it was controversial, wasn't it? Or some questioned the price tag of one hundred and ten million dollars, uh, thinking that that was a high price. But what what did that actually translate to? Well, what it translated to, and, and I should remind you know listeners that eighty more than 80, about eighty five percent of that money went right into supporting uh, individuals that were housed and supported. So almost all of it was really about giving people the right access to care. But what it resulted in over the time, too, was that we were able to see over a 1,000 Canadians placed into better quality housing and offered a range of supports and services. Many of those individuals remained in housing for a significant period of time. And here in Winnipeg, where I'm from, I'm constantly in contact with people that have remained in housing for the last decade. So in this period, in the fall of 2009, we supported individuals who had very unstable paths in terms of remaining in housing. And a decade later, we still have a number of people that remain in that housing. That, to me, is, I wish we would have it for every single person, but just to meet somebody that says, hey, for the last decade, I've been able to maintain my housing. Hmm. And where did the housing come from? 
That's the great part. You know, the housing really comes from what's available in the market. Housing First isn't about building housing. It's about partnering with the private sector, the nonprofit sector, and the public sector to create a bit of a, a, an inventory of available housing in whatever market, and then just work with individuals to get them into the right type of environment that might best suit them. So we're not really talking about building housing, because we know that, again, even in, I know, and, and people might not get it, uh, some of your listeners in a, in a high-cost center like Vancouver, but on any given day, there still is some housing available. So part of the Housing First team is to have housing specialists that really get out there and work to find the right fit in housing. And absolutely, it's hard work, but it's also rewarding in that the goal here is to get people back into the communities that they might once have been in, right? We want to get people uh, a bit of choice as much as we can to find the right neighborhood, the right location, and the right type of environment to see them become successful in their housing over the long term. Is it though, and, and you're right, it's it's such an expensive city that I think that's where people think of a bit of a roadblock going from being homeless to then being in housing that's sustainable. I mean, are we talking subsidized housing or are we talking about rental housing where somebody might get a roommate or somebody might start and, and get a bit of help with the rent? Because how, how do you go then from, yeah. from being homeless to actually, say, having an apartment? Absolutely. And it's a combination. Uh, what we try to do in, in many of the cities, and Vancouver is obviously one of those unfortunately, very difficult in terms of affordability. But the idea is to take the rates that provincial or or local authorities provide an individual, you know, shelter allowance rates, and often, yes, you have to subsidize those to get people into the private sector, or you're working with nonprofits and public housing to get people directly in. So it's a bit of a combination. So in other cities, what was happening was the social assistance rate, say, you know, maybe it's $400, would be topped up with a subsidy from the program. But again, what I remind listeners is that on any given day, homelessness costs money. Somebody staying in a shelter costs money. Somebody visiting an ER costs money. So if we can take some of those dollars and put them into the right types of supports, whether it's subsidizing housing or providing services, we can, you know, come out with a more positive outcome than somebody being, again, reliant on shelters and ERs as their, as their uh, main forms of shelter in some cases. And how do you make it as well when you talk about the supports? Because in a lot of cases, uh, we are dealing with people with mental health issues. In some cases, there's addiction issues. How do you make sure the supports are there that it's, st- it's also a successful transition from being homeless to not? Well, and that's, that's a great question. So what a good part of the Housing First model is, is you have dedicated teams that have highly skilled staff that provide very intensive supports and services, but the key to it all is smaller caseloads. So you want to keep your, your Housing First team, you want to keep their caseload as well under 100 if possible, right? So we're talking about client-to-staff ratios of maybe... 10 clients to one staff or maybe 15 or so clients to one staff. The, the idea there is that your, your team can really get to know the caseload. It's a lot easier to understand the complexity of 100 people than it is for 500 people or whatever a caseload would be for, say, a typical social worker. So we want to turn that model 
upside down to make sure that persons with really significant need and, you know, maybe quite significant mental health issues have a, a higher likelihood of connecting with, uh, with a staff member of a Housing First team. And so interesting. And like you said, so this first started in, in 2009. Uh, here we are 10 years later. We haven't solved the issue. There are still homeless people in, in various cities, Vancouver being one of them. How do you see this playing out going forward then or continuing uh, to have successes? Absolutely. I mean, it's a combination of things. We really need to continue to look for innovative approaches like Housing First and any more new interventions, right? Different ways to provide those supports and services. Yes, at the end of the day, though, we all have to recognize that as a society, we need to invest in that as a, as a social good, right, to support people. But the big challenge right now is, as we know, and, and I'm sure it's front and center in Vancouver, is we're entering into a phase of even deeper addiction. And the and it's not really a good outcome of at-home chez soi, but we did learn some lessons from Vancouver in terms of the intensity of drug addiction as opposed to some of the other Canadian communities. We're just all trying to get our heads around how do we provide those kinds of supports right now. But again, the key part here is, is we just can't give up. And we know that tonight, and it's getting cold across this country, that still over 30,000 Canadians will have no place to call home. And we owe it to them and those that are coming through this system to try to make a difference in their lives. All right. Well, it is a very interesting research and interesting findings. Uh, we'll leave it there. But thank you so much for joining us to talk about this this morning. Appreciate your time. No worries. And thank you so much. Take oh, care. All right. You too. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.